All right, well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4 as we continue our study through the book of Acts. When we left off with the apostles, the early church, they had just started now their ministry, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Before they didn't have the Holy Spirit before Jesus' time, but because of the gospel, because of the life, the death, and the, rec- the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was sent to the, the disciples and the apostles. And the church was growing. You guys remember, they started off with just 120 in the upper room. And then got added to them when Peter preached. 3,000 were added to the church. And the church was growing exponentially. And at this point in time, John and Peter, at the hour of prayer, they were heading to the temple to go praise the Lord and just have that prayer devotion to God. And as they were going up to the temple, if you guys remember in Acts chapter 3, they came across the lame man who had been lame from his mother's womb. He was over 40 years of age. His whole life, he had never known what it was like to walk. What it was like to take care of himself. So he would sit at the gate called Beautiful and beg for money as people would pass by into the temple. And Peter and John, as they came there, they saw the slain man. And Peter, looking at him intensely, full of the Holy Spirit, he told him, silver and gold I do not have for you, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And let the man leaping and praising God entered with them into the temple. And people saw this and marveled at the wonderful work of the Lord. And Peter used this as a spring point to be able to then preach the gospel and say, why do you look at me and John? We're nobody. We're just fishermen. But it is by the name of Jesus Christ that this man is now whole before you through the power of the name of Jesus Christ. He reminded them whom you persecuted and they were convicted and many were converted. So Peter just again now is having his evangelistic message and people are coming to know the Lord and he reminds them that they are looking forward to heaven when God is going to restore all things, including this earth. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. The old will be passed away. And God, Jesus Christ, our King, will reign. It will be a time of justice, of peace, finality. And after Peter had preached this, the religious leaders at that time, what we're going to read in chapter 4, is they became angry at what they were saying. They become jealous of Peter's preaching. So let's begin now with chapter 4, verse 1. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. It says this, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of, of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached 
in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. So look at what they're disturbed by right here, what the people, the religious leaders are being disturbed by. They're disturbed by the presence of God. I'm reminded of how we're not allowed to sing right now. They don't want us to sing the praises of God. And here, as we see, they're disturbed by the teaching and preaching in Jesus of salvation. You see, Jesus is an offense to the world. People are offended when you bring up that name. You could talk, even maybe possibly talk about God, but when you, as soon as you bring up the name of Jesus, people are offended. It says in verse 3, And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already ready evening. See here, Peter and John now, they're being persecuted for truth, for the truth. Is that something that we need to prepare ourselves for? It's already happening, happening but in small ways right now. We, we don't know the, the depths of persecution like they do across the world. In Middle Eastern countries, in China, they have to hide from their rulers, Christians do, because their lives are at stake. And we don't know that yet. But are we beginning to experience now this persecution? We need to be praying for our Christian liberties. Because they're trying to take them away from us. In verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So from 120, then they added 3,000, and now there's 5,000 people who are now believers. This is the early church birth right here. God is doing the work. He's growing the church. It's the, the movement of the Spirit. He just uses people as vessels. I've often heard you want to have the revival start, then just draw a circle around yourself. Get on your knees. I remember at Calvary Chapel, Bowling Springs, they had a, a period of time when the Sunday night service was called SR1, and it was stood for Spiritual Revival Starts With One, and that was supposed to be yourself. If you want to see the church revived, we have to begin in our own hearts, asking God to revive our own hearts. And this movement, it's, it's growing. Now in verse 5, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were all gathered together at Jerusalem. If you guys remember who Annas and Caiaphas were, they were there during Jesus' time as ruling high priests. 
for the Jews. See, Annas, the high priest, he was actually removed from his office by the Romans. But he still had this huge amount of power behind the scenes. Five of his sons onward would end up being the next high priest because that's how powerful this man had influence in the Jewish nation. But he was still even referred to as the high priest. Now, Annas was actually the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And he was the high priest during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. So Caiaphas, who was the ruling high priest of Jesus' time, he was actually the one who plotted to kill Jesus. And it was by his words that he prophesied that Jesus would end up dying for the nation. He said, remember... It's better that we should allow one man to die than the whole nation. And he didn't even realize that he was prophesying that Jesus would die so that people could have salvation. Now, both Annas and Caiaphas had Jesus tried illegally. They questioned him and they beat him. The high priests, they were from the Sadducees. See, with these religious leaders, you had this sect of Sadducees and Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees in that time, they were materialists. They had begun to believe that there was no spirit, there were no angels, and there was no resurrection. They were the materialists of the time. So, as Peter had preached this sermon... After the healing the lame man, he preached in the name and the power of Jesus and of the resurrection. It really made him upset because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So because of this, now Annas and Caiaphas, they go on the attack against John and Peter. So look at verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, let me pause right there. Look at what Peter's doing. Filled with the Holy Spirit, going against these religious leaders who very well have the power to execute him. And compare that to the Peter that we saw before. The Peter who, when Jesus was taken into trial by these same men, lingered far behind Jesus and followed. And then when the girl and other people began to ask Peter, hey, aren't you with Jesus? Weren't you one of his disciples? He denied it. And he began to curse and say, no, I don't, I don't know the man. And Jesus even warned him that this trial was coming his way, this test. And he failed, and he completely denied Jesus three times until the rooster crowed. And then he wept bitterly because he saw Jesus. They met face to face, and he wept because he remembered that Jesus warned him. And he denied Jesus now. And he was broken. So look at that Peter in the gospel, and compare that now to the Peter facing these same high priests, the same men, 
but now full of the Holy Spirit. And what's the lesson right there? The Holy Spirit is powerful in our lives. It gives us the power to face our fears, to move forward in the call of God in our life. Because Peter now is about to preach to them. Again, in verse 8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands before you whole. So now Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, is pointing out the hypocrisy of them, being called before the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, for this reason. He's not taking any credit for the miracle either, but he's giving God the glory Proclaiming the good that was done to the layman was directly from Jesus Christ. And in verse 11, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Peter here, he's quoting from Psalms 118. You see, they're the builders who are rejecting the stone, that's Jesus Christ. And Psalm 118 was prophesying that they were going to reject him. This chief cornerstone. There's the Jewish tradition that they had at this time of this story, when as they were building Solomon's temple, they were getting all the, the rocks into the quarry and they were not supposed to be using tools in the actual site of the temple that they were building because there wasn't supposed to be a lot of racket and noise going on. So they would quarry the rocks in one location. They called it Medinim. And they built it and quarried it. Just kidding. <laughs> and from there, they would then take these stones and take them and place them brick by brick, stone by stone, in place to build this temple. And the account goes, according to Jewish tradition, that they began to build. They found this odd-shaped stone, and they're like, Where, what is this stone? It doesn't, it's not in my chart here. So they just threw it off to the side. And then eventually, as they're getting ready to finish the temple, the contractor calls the head contractor of the quarry and says, hey, uh, send us the chief cornerstone. We're ready for it now. And the guy from the quarry sends back a letter saying, we already sent it, what do you mean? And they're like, oh, they already sent it. So then they start looking, well, where, where is it? And they start doing their inventory and looking around for it. And then one of the guys remembers, hey, what about that stone that was kind of weird shape that we put on the side? And they go to find it, and there's already bushes now growing over it. And they remove the bushes, they take it out, and sure enough, it was the cheap cornerstone that they were missing. And they put it there in the temple, to finalize, and it was the stone that was rejected now that had become the chief cornerstone. 
And that's sometimes what God was, what Jesus was in our life, where we rejected him and put him aside. But finding salvation, finding God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, he now has become our chief cornerstone, the rock which we stand for in the one. In verse 12, nor is there any salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other way for salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So no one comes to the Father but by me in John 14. See, nowadays people think, well, all roads lead to God, right? Well, yeah, but one's in punishment, and then the other one being glorified into heaven. The idea of coexist, that all religions can get together and sing kumbaya, it, it, it doesn't make sense, not logically. You see, because of truth, since truth is real, since there is absolute, if Jesus says, I'm the only way into salvation, that eliminates all other ways. Either Jesus is right, or he's wrong, but there has to be logic. It can't just be, well, Jesus says you can get to heaven this way, and Buddha says you can enter into nirvana this way, and Allah says you can get into heaven this way, and they're all right. No. If one of them is saying that I'm the only way, the truth, and the life, then there's a contradiction in what the others are saying. As Christians, when it comes to salvation, we are narrow-minded. Remember, Jesus taught that wide is the gate and the, the way that leads to hell, the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is that path, that road, that leads into the gates of heaven. Jesus is the only way. In verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. So here the religious leaders, they were wrong about John and Peter. Because they were thinking, oh, these guys are uneducated and untrained but the reality was they had spent three years in deep discipleship with Jesus, the God-man. They were experiencing this depth of, of training like no one else had been. Now, perhaps in the world perspective, they hadn't gone to Hebrew seminary, they hadn't completed their degrees, but God didn't need that. He filled them with the Holy Spirit. It's quite a miracle when we see these pastors coming from all crazy kinds of backgrounds, from drug backgrounds, uh, abuse backgrounds, and how God radicalizes their life, changes them, and they're just ordinary men. And God uses them. You see, another thing that they were wrong about, it says in verse, at the end of verse 13, they realized that they had been with Jesus. But it wasn't only past tense. 
through the Spirit, they were still with Jesus. Jesus was standing there with them. And in verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. See, how can they argue now that this man is made physically whole? Remember when Jesus would go to the house where he would heal the cripple who came in through the roof and his friends brought him to Jesus and so they opened up the roof, lowered their friend down into the room. And Jesus, looking at the man, said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious leaders heard this and they're like, What? How dare he? Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts and their mind, he said, why, why do you question when I say your sins are forgiven you? He says, but that Jesus, but that God may be glorified. Says, What's harder to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or get up and walk? Rise up and walk? See, the answer to that question is that it's harder to say, get up and walk. And here's why. If you say your sins are forgiven you, it may be true, it may be false, but you can't really see if sins are forgiven. But if you tell somebody to get up and walk, you have to be able to see them get up and walk. And then he said to the religious leaders, he said, but that you may know the power of God, rise up and walk. And the guy got up off of his mat, rolled it up, and just strolled right out of there. But Jesus first took care of the more important thing was the man's salvation. His sins were forgiven. And he healed him. Now in verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go aside, out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Again, we're reminded here that the world does not want Jesus Christ preached. It threatens their way of life. Why? Because Jesus calls people to come and die. He calls them to pick up their cross daily. And people, it's in our nature to love the sin in our life. And sometimes we don't want to die to self. And that's what these religious leaders are doing here. They're turning their own conviction into hard-hearted persecution against the disciples. And it says in verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. 
I'm reminded of Jeremiah, who said the word of God was like a fire in his heart. And when he was persecuted and said, that's it, God, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to speak in your name. I'm not going to speak your word. He tried to hide it away in his heart, but it burned in his heart like a fire so that he had to preach. I'm reminded of Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, who were put on trial before King Nebuchadnezzar, commanded to bow down before the great golden statue that he made to worship. And they said, no, we're not going to bow down to your statue, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, well, then I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they told him, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And that's what taking a stand for Christ is. That's why I love hearing you guys sing this morning. Because we're taking a stand for what's right. We do submit to government. But when the government starts telling us to disobey the Lord, we have to obey God. In verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Oh, let me back up to verse 21. Sorry, I skipped ahead. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way of punishing them because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. See, the Pharisees here, they're fearing man more than God. They're scared of the crowd. Like, oh, well, the crowd recognizes that a miracle happened, so they're scared. And they let them go for fear of the crowds. God's sovereignty right there. His grace and mercy on his disciples. And in verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. I'm going to pause right here. After being threatened of persecution, mightily by the Pharisees, what do we see the disciples doing? They're praying. They get together in one accord to lift their voices to God, to pray. We're about to read this prayer of boldness, for boldness that they pray. And look, the disciples respond to the persecution. It was definitely wrong. They got together and prayed. I think that here we have an important key in our struggle with world powers that are often antagonistic toward righteous causes. It doesn't say that they all got together and painted signs 
and went down and protested in front of the temple. They went to God, they took it to prayer. I think that when we see injustices in our world, that we can actually do more through prayer than we can through public kinds of demonstrations. I'm not one to pick or carry these signs. If you want to get together with me and pray, I'm here and I'm ready. But I hesitate towards some of these militant types of operations going on. It's much better that we pray. Again, in verse 24, so when they heard that they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. See, first they recognize in their prayer who they're praying to, reminding themselves who they're talking to. And when you remind yourself of who you're talking to at the beginning of your prayer, you get that eternal perspective that God can do anything. There's nothing too hard for him. And in verse 25, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. You see the sovereignty of God of allowing his son to endure persecution and trial at the hands of the Jews, at the hands of Herod and Pontius Pilate, Right here, Peter is giving us a commentary and insight into the meaning of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 talks about why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things. And now we're given this commentary from Peter that it's prophesying that the people plotting vain things is actually referring to the plot against our Lord Jesus, the nations raging against our Lord Jesus. And I love that the Bible right here is shown to be the best commentary on the Bible itself. When Peter is talking about the Old Testament, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through him, so we know it's true. In verse 29, Now Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness that they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So why are signs and wonders done right here? According to the Bible right here, it says that God's servants may speak his word. In verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaking, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Not too long ago, we were uh, meeting Wednesday night at the 
youth center, the uh, senior citizen center in West Covina. And as we were there, going through the Bible study, all of a sudden the whole place began to shake, and it was live on TV. And I remember, like, if you were to watch that video, you'd see me t- teaching, and all of a sudden I just kind of start smiling, and it's kind of like awkward. I'm just like, okay, we're in, we're in the youth. Like, and then we paused, I had to pause for a moment so we could call our loved ones and make sure everyone was okay. But I was reminded of this verse when I was reading that, and I was like, wow, sometimes God just moves through his nature. And they were full of the Holy Spirit, and the earth was shaking. And we're reminded of that God is in control of everything. In verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Here, now this is what we're seeing in the the scripture is an attempt by the early church for this form of of communal living, uh, this form of, of community. Uh, of communism. Uh, They're sharing together of their assets. Now, I want to know and let you guys know that this attempt, well-intentioned, and I I don't don't think it was a fault to them, but it it ended in a failure where Paul would end up going to the Gentile churches, taking up offerings to bring back to those who were in Jerusalem. Because they weren't able to use this communal service properly. And Paul later begins to write on work ethic that if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And he would tell them that some of them were acting disorderly and they're not working, but that they were trying to actually live off of the body, that people were just like, okay, since we live in this community, we should be catered to. But it wasn't for that support. So this move that's it's motivated motivated by love, it was very commendable. But unfortunately it, it didn't end up working and it ends up disastrously. Annas and Sophia, which we're gonna get into next week, they end up lying to the Holy Spirit because of this community type service where they say, Oh, we gave this much money, but that wasn't the truth. And we're gonna see what happens to them, them next week. So the motive behind it was right and all, yet God has declared that man shall earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. So you can't just say, well, we're not going to work anymore, and we're just going to serve the Lord and go holy and righteous, and God is going to take care of us. No, God has called us to be responsible, not to live haphazardly. Jesus told them, occupy until I come, let every man work, laboring with his own hands. Now in verse 36, 
and Joseph, who was also named Barnabas, by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas, Barnabas here, we're going to see him continually do the book of Acts. He's one of Paul's great companions, and his name, son of encouragement. We need to be that way in other people's lives. We need to be a Barnabas to them. We need to encourage people. We need a Barnabas in our life. We need a Paul in our life, someone to look up to, to mentor us. And we also need Timothys, people who we could pour into and mentor them. So this week, may you guys be blessed in the liberty and freedom that Jesus Christ has given us. May you continue to sing of his praises and continue to stay in his word and see where God is going to take us again this week. Use the name of Jesus. Share it with somebody in conversation. Bring it up. Use his name. There's power in it. Let's all stand. We're going to have communion this afternoon. So as my mom prepares the communion, I'm going to worship. And why don't you guys just join me in this communion song?
This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when Jesus took this bread, it was symbolic of his body being broken on the cross for us. Let's take of the bread. It says, in the same way, he took the cup of wine and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you take this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So let's partake of the cup. Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would empower us, Lord. Heal those who are sick. Be with those who are going through trial, Father. Father, may we find strength in you when persecution comes our way. May your Son be glorified in our lives. We love you. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we say. Amen. Let's all stand. One of the song worship. Okay. Hang out, talk, fellowship. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. Nothing 
blessed this week. In Jesus' name, 